you know, we were obviously starting to run a little, you know, behind on time. So Mike and I are going to run through the things so we have some uh, time for a Q and A. Um, Mike, as you guys know, wrote the manual for fat loss related to um, Eat to Perform, and the thing that makes Mike special um, is not that he that is not that he lived <laughs> not that he lives miles from my house, um, but Mike was one of the first people that I met um, as it relates to my journey. Right, he was you know, studying for his PhD um, at the University of Minnesota, and I started talking to him online um, related to the body fat testing that I was doing and kind of understanding how all that was going. And I was starting to pepper him on, you know, this expansion side of things, you know, because there wasn't a lot of people talking about expansion. But what was really interesting about Mike, and what I think is really, you guys are gonna take away from what he was saying, is that there's like the magic Whole Foods people, you know, and you know, well, okay, so there's the magic Whole Foods people, and then there's the donuts and Pop-Tarts people, okay? And what Mike was saying, like, can't we be in the middle somewhere? Like, there's some argument for variety and some argument for freedom. And um, I like that approach because I know for both Mike and myself, myself, we eat a lot of Whole Foods, you know, but I also do a lot of really cool stuff and some of that cool stuff requires, you know, not only nutrients, but some energy density. And so every now and again, you'll see some Cheetos on my food blog or whatever, you know, you just don't get there with chicken and kale. And so Mike's gonna talk a little bit about that and then I'll follow up with my portion. So here goes Mike Ness. What do I have for time? Uh, you're good. Right. Cool, so thank you guys very much for coming out. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for the intro, Paul. So as Paul said, it's a little bit about expansion based, right? So how many people here have been told just keep eating less and do less and eat less. <laughs> right, probably pretty much everyone, right? How did that work for you over the long term? Good or bad? <laughs> say again? We're here, right? We're here, right, yeah. <laughs> so I would say probably not as good as a long-term method, right? Now, of course, calories do matter and there are times you're gonna have to restrict certain things and that type of thing. But the one thing I realized when I started working with clients, probably like 2006, I'm like, well, I kind of know a fair amount about physiology type stuff. Client comes in and look at the little food log he had. It's like, okay. And I'm like, this is pretty easy. Just stop eating Oreos. And he kind of looks at me because he was eating about a sleeve of Oreos every day. And in my brain, I'm thinking, oh, this is brilliant. I don't know why this training stuff is so hard with people. And you can imagine where this went. So a client comes back in next week. I said, hey, Brian, how was the Oreos? He's like, oh, I think I'm actually eating more Oreos. I'm like, well, wait a minute, didn't we have an agreement that you were gonna stop eating Oreos? It's like, yeah, I know, but I just I haven't been able to do it. So fast forward, this goes on for, unfortunately, a couple months. And I finally realized that what I'm doing, even though I could justify it from the physiology textbook, wasn't really working um, with him. So if I told everyone in here, don't think of a pink elephant, what did you just think of? 
a pink elephant, right? So if I'm telling him this whole time to try to not do something, that's and subconsciously he's kind of thinking about it the whole time. Um, so that didn't really work. So I finally then figured out, I'm like, okay, so if that's not working, I should probably do the direct opposite of what I've been doing. It'll probably get me there to the closest. Have you guys watched Seinfeld in here before? Yeah. Yeah. You ever see that episode where George starts doing everything the opposite of how he's ever done anything before? And like everything like starts working for him? So I call that the Costanza method. <laughs> so if you ever get stuck in the elevator, right, and people are like, your trainer, oh, your trainer, oh, okay, cool. I want to lose fat, what do I do? And so I usually ask him, I'm like, well, in essence, do the opposite of everything you've ever done just now. Like, what do you do for training? Well, I do some treadmill stuff. Okay, go pick up some weights. How much protein do you eat? I don't know, I heard it's evil. All right, so eat more of that, right? So just do the opposite of pretty much everything you've ever done. You're probably gonna get a lot closer, right? Because the reality is if all that stuff worked, we wouldn't be having the discussion we're having now about you being unhappy with your results, right? So I found that by doing that as an expansion-based, that actually worked a lot better, both from a physiology side and a psychology side. At some point, if you get down to, let's say, 800 calories per day, how do you think your life's gonna be in general? Probably not a lot of fun, right? Yeah, but if you're up at 2,800 calories, well, does that sound a little bit better for you? Say again? Yeah, a party, right? You can have more cold beer, right? After you do silly stuff or whatever, right? You have plenty of room, right? So, sounds good to me. And what you find is that your metabolism is actually not static at all. People tend to think that, oh, you've got X metabolic rate and that's just where it is. And then when you get old, it just goes in the crapper, right? There's not much you can do about it. And what we find is that generally is not true at all. Um, some of the literature even says that up to about the age of even 60, your metabolic rate doesn't drop at all. The big huge caveat to that statement is assuming that you stay as active as you were when you were younger. And most people that just doesn't happen, right? So you think about how active you were in college and run around between classes, maybe playing sports, doing whatever you're doing, you're probably not even doing a lot of that. Right, so we work in an office a lot of times. Hey, not much movement. Ooh, big spike, CrossFit class or whatever. Back to very little movement again. So exercise and all that stuff is good. You know, it's probably not quite enough to make up for your low movement during the day. So your metabolism can actually go up and down. And what's interesting is the more that you eat, your metabolism can actually go up. And that's the part that people forget. Now at some point, that doesn't mean you're gonna eat more and your metabolism is going to you know, outrace that, but it will actually start to go up. So one of the classic studies they did for this was uh, Levine. They overfed people by 1,000 calories per day. So if they did that, what do you think happened to people's body weights? Did you say it went up or down? Up, and you're correct. They did gain weight. What's interesting in that from the study, again, these are relatively untrained people, and I'd have to look up the exact specs of it. Oh, yeah. 
A fair amount of that, especially initially, was actually lean body mass, meaning that just by overfeeding some of these people, they actually gained lean body mass, which does include muscle and everything else that's comprised of it. And the range, if I remember right, was, I think it was about an eight-week study, about two to 14 pounds of weight that they gained. Now, of course, you're overfeeding them like by a thousand calories a day overnight. So Sunday, you enroll in the study. Woo! Monday morning, you start getting an extra thousand calories per day, right? There's no slow warm-up period or any of that kind of stuff. And what they found was that in the group that gained only about two pounds, they spontaneously started moving more, or what's called NEAT. So non-exercise activity thermogenesis. In essence, they unconsciously just started moving more. It was unconscious, so they didn't really know that they did it. The unfortunate part is the people on the other end of the spectrum that gained a lot more weight really didn't move much more at all. So some people, when you overfeed them automatically, they actually start moving around even more, or increases in need. So all that means that your metabolism isn't necessarily fixed from a number of calories that you're burning per day. That that can actually change quite a bit, and even by eating more, it can actually go up. Right now in the study, there wasn't really anyone who lost weight doing that. But again, that's a pretty extreme, right? These are people who are not necessarily lifting, they're not really changing anything else, and they're overfeeding them by a huge, massive amount. And there's debate about you know what it was and all that kind of stuff. So the nice takeaway is that this can actually change. And if you happen to downregulate yourself to just eating a total of a thousand calories per day, you're probably going to be wise to spend some time expanding your metabolism back up, right? If you try to cut from a thousand calories per day, you know, take away 200 calories, you're at 800 calories already. Eh, that sounds pretty, pretty miserable to me, right? So a lot of people that we work with, and Paul will go more into this, they have to spend a little bit more time on expansion. So my buddy Dr. Lonnie Lowry has a cool phrase, it's uh, do more, eat more, be more, <laughs> right? So I think a lot of times they get very, very hyper-focused on using restriction as the only answer. Oh, if I just eat less of this, and oh, I'll just do less of this, and I try to burn more calories by doing more exercise, and many times that tends to uh, backfire on a lot of people. Any questions on that part so far? Did I lose anyone? Oh, we'll have time for more questions and stuff at the end too. So how we look at that is that that is the number, right? So if we put a number on the amount of calories or what's called total daily energy expenditure, that that can actually change both up and down. The next part I would look at then is from this, where is that fuel actually coming from? So if you were to divide the body into two main fuels, what were the two fuels would you say? What would you have? Say again? Uh, fat and sugar, right? Or fat and carbohydrates? Yep, I would agree. So if we divide it just into two, we have fats and we have carbohydrates. And back to what the previous speaker said, which is really good. If you're using fat, what is probably the main exercise you are doing? 
what would you say? Anaerobic or aerobic, right? So which one of those would you pick? If fat is the main fuel source during the exercise. Back and forth? Yeah. So it's actually aerobic. So fat and then carbohydrates are actually anaerobic. If you were to go out and just do a long, slow duration run, the main fuel source in a perfectly healthy person, so not a disease state, that's going to be primarily aerobic metabolism. The main fuel for that is going to be actually fat. If you do the flip side, if you go, let's say do some super crazy CrossFit intense workout, that's actually an anaerobic exercise, and the main fuel for that is carbohydrates. So that can be carbohydrates primarily stored in the body as glycogen. So primarily muscle glycogen, second would be liver glycogen. So for metabolic flexibility, you want to be able to use the right fuel at the right time. So how I got working on this was, long story short, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, did a Master's in Mechanical Engineering, more Biomechanics, did a short four to five year stint, uh, PhD work in Biomedical Engineering, and after all that decided that I wanted nothing more to do with math at all. I was so tired of math, I actually was in an MRI class and the professor said, we're now going to derive all the equations that are used in an MRI. And I went, uh, you can, I'm out of here, right? So I, I literally only had like two classes left for the classwork portion of the PhD for that. I uh, hadn't done a lot of the research. Left, went over to the exercise physiology department, enrolled in the PhD program there. Had to start over from ground zero again. The first day, I sit down in the meeting, my advisor's like, hey, we got like two new projects for you. Uh, one's on heart rate variability, and one's on metabolic flexibility. And they both involve a fair amount of math. And most people who take exercise phys, you know, math isn't a huge requirement for that field. So he looks all the way around the table, and then points at me, and he's like, hey, you, math boy, these are your new projects. So that was the next seven and a half years of my life after that. So that's how I actually got started doing it. And at the time, I did, it didn't really make much sense because the concepts for this have been around for a super long time, but the new literature and just the way of thinking is actually still relatively new. Um, if you look in the literature, you can go back to David Kelly's stuff in the year 2000. Uh, you can go back and look up the crossover effect from Brooks and Mercier, which is like 1992. You can go back to even earlier stuff than that. The takeaway is that you want to use the right fuel at the right time. If you're going to do a really heavy weight training or heavy CrossFit endurance, that is a, I should say, a CrossFit training session, primarily anaerobic. So you actually want to use carbohydrates at that point. Anyone here try to do a lot of CrossFit or interval training on an extremely low carbohydrate diet? A couple of people? How'd it go? Ran out of fuel? Same, ran out of fuel. Anyone else? Do you feel good, bad, indifferent? Tired? Yeah. And what you find a lot of times is that 
you don't have enough fuel to complete the training intensity. We go back to expansion, right? So for training over the long term, not overnight, you want to be able to do more work, right? So that's a long term view. Most people look at that and go, okay, I want to do more work in you know, beast mode Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday for the next four weeks, and that doesn't work quite so well. When you go to do your aerobic-y type training, which we all just learned is very important for recovery, most of that, ideally, you want to come from fat. So very low level, longer duration. So the example which I agree with, you're gonna go run for 42 minutes at a heart rate of 115 beats per minute, if we were to look at what fuel you're using, it should primarily be fat at that point. Did I lose anyone yet? Does that make sense? Yep. So what you would do then for your training, then is, I would say before, so weight training type intensity, you would want to consume some protein and carbohydrates. The reason for that is related to a hormone called insulin. Everyone here has heard of insulin before? Yep. And insulin has a lot of sort of bad information about it and everyone assumes it's just nasty, horrible hormone and you need to do all this stuff to control it. But in essence, it's a, insulin you can think of as a fuel selector, which I stole from Jeff Bullock. So if my insulin is super high, I'm actually going to tell my body to primarily use carbohydrates. So if I go out and have three Krispy Kreme donuts, what's going to happen to my insulin levels? Are they going to go up or down? Up. Is that a good or a bad thing? Yeah. Yeah, kind of depends, right? I would say in general it's probably a really good thing because my blood levels of glucose are going to be really high and my body has to get that out of the bloodstream. So the fact that I would store some of that in glycogen in the liver, possibly glycogen in the muscles, possibly convert some of that over to fat, called de novo lipogenesis through the liver, those are all actually beneficial things, right? Because we don't want those blood levels of glucose to be super high all the time. And in a healthy person, that usually just won't happen, right? The body's got lots of systems in order to do that. If my insulin levels are super low, what do you think the fuel source is then? If your insulin is low. Fat, exactly. So if you're gonna go out and do an aerobic recovery-based session, do you think you should have a lot of carbohydrates before or not very many? Let's say it's going to be short. Let's say uh, 42 minutes. Say a lot or not many? Yeah, I would say probably not too many. Right? So I would primarily do that in a, what's called a lower carbohydrate background or a lower level of insulin. So I'm trying to push my body to use more fat as a fuel. What about if I'm going to go do a very heavy CrossFit endurance, I shouldn't say endurance, but uh, weight training, high intensity session? Do you want something beforehand, do you think, or not? Yes, I would say you would want carbs at that point. As you have carbohydrates, you can increase your fuel, and then you're also pushing your body to use more carbohydrates at that point. 
So who in here actually uses carbohydrates around training or during training for higher intensity work? Help people? Anyone else? Yeah. Have you noticed the difference in performance doing that? You're nodding your head, yes? Better? More energy? Yeah, yeah. So that's usually what you find. Of course, having enough carbohydrates in your diet is beneficial, but I find that timing them around your training session works a little bit better too. Um, so one thing I did, I was in a, a volunteer person for the Ram Race. You guys ever heard of the Ram Race, Race Across America? It's a really obscure bike race. It's literally a race. So the team I was on, I was a support person helping them. Four person team. We started in uh, San Diego and they finished in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, so these are not Harley motorbikes, they're pedal bikes, right? So someone's pedaling all the time for 24 hours for about seven days. There was a group of four people and they would alternate back and forth in two shifts. So the first guy would go out and ride as hard as he could for usually like half hour. He would switch with the next guy, he'd ride as hard as he can for half hour. And they would alternate back and forth for a couple hours and then they would go rest and the next two guys would go back out. And when they're riding, at first I thought in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're bike riding, they're, you know, just kind of cruising along and they're actually riding really fast. The average miles per hour we had for our team, we ended up getting third, I think it was like 19 and a half miles per hour over like almost seven days. So not elite level, but pretty fast when you consider, you know, sleep, mountains, train mishaps, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what I realized was these people who were riding, one, obviously needed a lot of fuel, and the second issue that we ran into is one guy, we had a lot of the you know, pre-packaged fuels and everything we brought with. I thought, oh, this will be great, you know, easy carbohydrates, we'll have plenty of fuel. The part that I kind of missed is that about halfway through the race, one guy said, I just, my stomach feels horrible. Um, I can't have any more of the unnamed prepackaged stuff we had. And I'm like, you don't want any more of this? And I show him the label and he literally almost turned blue. He's like, if you ever show that to me again, he's like, I'm gonna throw it at your head. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So now I'm going, oh crap. So what do I do with this guy? We're like halfway through. So I said, all right, well, what do you want to eat? It's like, Big Newtons. Like, Big Newtons. It's like, yep. I'm like, okay. So he actually rode for like the next three and a half days on pretty much Big Newtons alone, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Uh, so you don't always necessarily have to have the perfect fuel for everything that you're doing all the time. I would argue that the wider variety of things you can use within reason, you're probably going to be better. Right, so he was only gonna have to finish another three and a half days, right? It's not like he's gonna live his life on 7-Eleven Slurpees with no ice, right? But the fact that you can drink a 7-Eleven Slurpee with no ice probably three days in a row and you don't die, just boggles my mind, right? The fact that you can go from one fuel to the next. Um, last thing on that too, so I did a presentation for DARPA once. Has anyone here heard of DARPA, Defense Resource Projects Agency? Really freaky group of people, but they basically invented like the internet, GPS, all that kind of stuff. And the presentation I did was on metabolic flexibility. So can we train people to the extreme 
so that instead of trying to have their environment match everything, can we train them so they match their environment? So if you were to drop these people off somewhere, can they eat local food? Can they survive? Can they not eat for a period of time and still be able to perform their job? Right? Can we get their metabolic flexibility so high that it becomes easy for them to adapt to different fuel sources and still maintain performance, right? But at the end of the day, with those people, they have to maintain performance or really bad stuff happens to them. So before weight training, most of the time, in general, this is just the general recommendation, so about 20 grams of protein and about 40 grams of carbohydrates to start. That's going to be anywhere from about 30 to 120 minutes beforehand. Reason for the wide time frame, so 20 grams of protein, about 40 grams of carbohydrates, 30 to 120 minutes before. The reason for the wide time frame is it just depends on how that feels on your stomach. And usually in general, like uh, it's called like high glycemic, So things like dates, spotted bananas, white rice, cream of wheat, right? things that your body is going to turn into carbohydrates relatively fast and are not really going to hang around your stomach for a long period of time. Some people can handle that, but for a lot of people it really kind of bugs them. If you want to use like a pre-packaged one, like whey protein and uh, Vitargo works really well. You guys, anyone in here used Vitargo or heard of it before? A couple people? Yeah, I should. I keep telling Anthony, the owner, that he needs to sponsor me because I keep telling everyone about Vitargo. I don't make any money from him at all. It's a uh, carbohydrate has a very high insulin effect, and it's nice because it doesn't cause any bloating or GI issues almost at all. I've only had one athlete so far who's ever had any issues with it, and she's had a lot of digestive issues and has parts of her digestive tract actually missing and stuff. But pretty much everyone else, because you'll get calls from people that are like, hey, I'm going to do the CrossFit Games and I got your number. Um, here's my background on what I do. Okay, I start the games Friday. Um, today's Wednesday. What do I do? And you go, oh boy. <laughs> so you're like, we probably should have tested a whole bunch of stuff before this point. But in essence, I tell them, yeah, some type of protein, a whole bunch of Vitargo, make sure you're hydrated, make sure your electrolytes are good. Pretty much all the time, that actually works really well. Um, so in extreme cases where your stress is super high, uh, things like that can actually work really well. And then after would be pretty much the same thing again. So most of the other meals... Same ratio. Yep, same ratio. Uh, Vitargo is a uh, carbohydrate powder, correct. Yeah, V-I-T-A-R-G-O. Targo. It is a little expensive, which is kind of the downside, but there's uh, no gluten. It's actually uh, NSF tested for sports, all the, the standard good things, lot tested, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and then after, about the same amount. So your other meals are primarily going to be protein and fats and vegetables. That doesn't mean you're never going to have carbohydrates at any other meal. Again, this is just sort of a rough starting point of where to start from. 
Having whole fruit at other meals, that's fine too. Yeah, so what is the time frame of after? Whenever you can, to be honest. Yeah, so I tell, yeah, I tell people, eh, half hour to an hour-ish, somewhere around there. Um, there's not a lot of literature to support super critical timing if you're only doing one session per day. So if you're doing one session at 3 p.m. and you finish at 4 and you have something to eat at 5, you're plenty good. If, however, you said, okay, I'm doing two a day, so now I've got a heavy weight training session at 1, I'm done at 2, and now i got to do like a heavy skill session or something at 4 p.m., then having a fast-acting carbohydrate will make a huge difference. But for most people, if you're just exercising once per day, um, the timing just isn't that that critical. So. And what about after workout? Uh, uh, yeah, that's fine. Yep. So I would include that in there. But I, I've heard that the window there is 30 minutes. Yeah. So what is the window for protein effects after training? Is that the question? Yeah. It's probably pretty high. Um, so the studies that they've shown on that, uh, my buddies Alan Aragon, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, did a pretty cool review on that uh, meta-analysis at JISSN. What we have now shows the timing effects from protein in relation to post-training, probably not that big of a deal. Um, you could have some couple hours later, a few hours later, probably going to be pretty good. Um, the only little tiny argument with that is that you have maybe less total protein if you wait. Right, so as long as your total amount of protein is good, the exact you know anabolic window closing at 37 seconds and 14 milliseconds, nah, just doesn't matter that much to be honest. So I tell you, most people probably don't need to worry too much about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an awesome question. So what if you train in the morning? So some of those people, depending on how they feel may actually be fasted beforehand or may have some protein and carbohydrates. A lot of it in reality just depends upon their schedule and what they have going on. I know people that get up at 5 o'clock and are in the gym doing their first set at like 5.15, right, or 5.30. It's going to be pretty hard to try to cram anything in there. I have had those people do it with like a whey protein and Vitargo. That actually works just fine. But if you have to do that in the morning fasted, um, it's probably not that big of a deal. So what I tell people then is just move your carbohydrates in general to the night before. And we do have a lot of people that do that and it, it works well too. Yep, Because you'll also have glycogen levels to be high enough that as long as you're eating enough carbohydrates, your training will, will still be alright. Your question? Yeah, so she's asking if you train in the evening. For most people, it goes back to what is their lifestyle, right? So a lot of people say, my main meal with my family is in the evening. We tend to eat a lot of rice, pasta, carbohydrates. I'd say, all right, so if you got done training at four, you eat dinner at five or six, then your dinner is primarily going to be your post-training carbohydrates. Yeah, so that works out pretty good. So what you find is if you're only training around once per day, the timing and a lot of this stuff just isn't uber, uber critical. Um, so, yeah. So, I'm 
confused. I thought the 20 protein, 40 grams carb was before training. Before and after. Before and weight after. training. Okay. Yep, before and after weight training. Okay. Yep. Yep, correct. Want a question back there? Nope. Cool. Alright, so we'll just wrap up here then. So the takeaway from this is that if your body actually wants to use both fuels, so anaerobic is primarily carbohydrates, aerobic is primarily the use of fat. And well, the biggest issue I don't see as much now with CrossFit is for a while we have people doing like ketogenic diets or really, really low carbohydrate diets, doing a lot of high intensity weight training, and that usually goes well for four to six weeks at best, and then everything just goes to, to heck after that. Um, so if you actually want to use carbs um, and fat, and you want the ability to switch back and forth. All right, so what the last speaker said too is that when you're training, the switching back and forth will also happen during your training session. So if we put a fancy equipment on you to measure you, you just do, let's say, three clean and jerks, primarily carbohydrates, and the rest period there is actually gonna be more fat that's gonna be used. So you're actually constantly switching back and forth from these. And your ability to use fat in a fasted state can actually be changed. So when I was in the lab, we had one person come in, we did a lot of work with a little metabolic heart that can measure this, and it was fasted, very, very low intensity exercise, and she was using about 90% carbohydrates. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Ah, you know, you probably just forgot to fast or whatever. She's like, no, I fasted. And I'm like, okay. I said, well, can you come in like the following week and we'll just retest you and, and see. So it comes back in the following week, same thing, right? So at rest, she was primarily using 80 to 90% carbohydrates. And in essence, she should have been using 80 to 90% fat, right? So if people have issues with body composition, Obviously, a lot of the numbers matter, but it also matters what fuel you're using. Because right? most of your number for resting metabolic rate, that should actually be coming from the use of fat. And there is three pieces of literature now showing that that is very, very variable from one person to the next. That's kind of the other reason for some of the more intricate timing effects there too. What type of fat and how much fat? So in the diet? Yeah, so for aerobic training, I have most people just do that fasted because that, that's going to tell their body to actually use mostly body fat as the fuel source preferred for that. Yep, so it'd be your own body fat for that ideally. Because most people are not going to be high level endurance athletes, they're looking more of a body composition change from that. In general, yes, and that's a starting point. So I have some guys that are up at, you know, almost 100 grams pre and post. That's pretty rare. A lot of them are 70 pre and post is pretty normal. Um, so I tell most people just to keep it simple, 20 and 40 just to start and then see how you feel. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Any other questions on that? How would insulin sensitivity affect the metabolic flexibility? Yeah, the short answer is it does affect it. So this question is how does insulin sensitivity affect that? 
It does affect it to a large degree. Um, actually, the healthier you are, the better in general that's going to be, so you have to worry about it less. The one thing I will add to that, though, is if you're doing a very low-carbohydrate diet, pretty high amounts of fat, moderate protein, that you can actually see changes in muscle insulin sensitivity that actually impairs the use of carbohydrates. So we do work with some athletes who have had very, very low amounts of carbohydrates in their diet, moderately high fat, moderate protein for many, many months, and you start to introduce more carbohydrates and they just feel kind of dizzy, lightheaded, not very good, right? Because their body is programmed those carbohydrates to be more used by the brain. So the muscle level there is actually insensitive to carbohydrates. So what we do with those people is that when they're doing like a weight training session, they would move just one serving of that about halfway through their training. So you have the counter-regulatory hormones like that, like cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine. In essence, they don't get as symptomatic, but now they're getting benefits of having a few more carbohydrates too. Then most of the time, they need to do a little bit more expansion towards carbohydrates that way. Cool, and then Paul will uh, answer more specific questions and go over the weight method for you guys. So thank you very much, appreciate it.